we, uh, we've had some great time in our studies for the last few weeks, and here we are, and we'll be reviewing Lesson 4, which will cover Chapters 8 all the way through the very, very beginning of Chapter 11, just one tiptoe verse into Chapter 11. Uh, but as we move into that, before we actually head into that, I'd like to do a little review. Um, if you want to take notes, it's on page 116, right there on the back side of your race group discussion questions there. You know, it's interesting to me, as we do our study, if you think about it this way, we're taking notes and studying a history book. Like back in the day when we went to school, we went through a history book, right? Um, we're also studying a letter. We're studying a letter and we're getting to know the people that it was written to. We're getting to know the guy who wrote it. But really what we're understanding, it's both of those, but above all, it's God's word and it's alive. And aren't you filled as you read it, as you think back through time, Paul writing it, as you imagine the church first hearing those words, and now here you are today, reading it or maybe even rereading and studying Corinthians. So uh, with that in mind, I want to go back a little bit, and we've been reviewing this each time because this is a central truth that we want to make sure we're understanding. And so I'd like us to go ahead and say this together and, and continue to refresh in our mind and answer this question, who am I? Ready? I am a sanctified saint who's been given grace and made rich in every way. I lack no spiritual gift as I await Jesus' return, knowing I am strengthened to the end and will be blameless. I am a part of a unique community where I have been called into fellowship because of the true account of Jesus Christ, and I belong to him. That is who I am. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with that truth in mind, with that constantly circling over us and in us, and we go back to the beginning, I want us to remember that as we move forward into each of the chapters and the issues that Paul keeps on dealing with, because it can all be resolved and answered if we're living this, if we're living what that truly says about who we are, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and what we've received. And so with that in mind, uh, the uh, last lesson, we talked about this, and Paul said, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And I helped you see that this image here, what Paul was referring to, he was a hooperetes, an under rower, right? Sitting on the bench with his fellow believers getting splinters in his backside. And uh, just focusing on the drumbeat and the call of Christ. And hopefully that image, or maybe even went home and watched the movie. And Paul's focus here was to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And I had you do uh, that activity in your create and share with a jar and filling it and making sure you got the first things first and then coming in after that. And then in this last lesson, I asked you to really think through then, what would your vision look like? What would a mission look like for you? Uh, what, what strategies would you employ to get to that? And then what goals can you set for yourself and keep on refreshing those as they move you toward the vision and your mission and your strategies and supporting all that? Um, so Paul's been addressing some big issues, obviously, that are going on in the church. Um, 
not little teeny tiny ones, but big ones. And um, not only that, he's been responding to questions that they have and, and coming up with answers with that. And the second of those questions that he um, asked has to do with a problem that's really actually kind of common in our church today. And you might be thinking, really? We don't worry about if we're sac eating meat sacrificed to idols or not. But if we hyper-focus on the literal, actual is incident that's happening, we're going to miss the general principle. And if we continue to do that as we, as we study God's word, then we're going to dismiss anything that's like, well, that's for those days. That's for back then. So it's important for us as we study God's word, yes, we are aware of context. Yes, we're aware of the culture. But what's the principle that God's teaching me? And whereas I might not be struggling with food being offered to idol, that's not going to come up in my life today as I'm on my way home from church or work or wherever, what's the principle? What's God teaching us? That's what we need to do. And just as an aside, it's one of the reasons why it's probably good to get a Bible that doesn't have a lot of headings, or at least try to ignore them. Because if you go into your Bible and you see the heading, it'll say food offered to idols or something along those. And you might be inclined to go, wow, I don't need that one. I don't deal with food offered to idols. And then you would miss the whole point of, of that scripture. So we want to be looking at the principle that's behind the problem, right? The principle that's behind the problem. So Paul opens up and he starts to address this. And he says, now concerning food offered to idols. This must have been an issue that they brought up. And he could answer simply, just go ahead and eat it. Who cares? And be done. There's your answer. Freedom in Christ, baby. <laughs> right? It's just a dumb idol. Literally dumb. It can't speak. It's worth nothing. And that's in your past. Idols don't mean anything. You guys know that. It's a settled issue. Or he could say, maybe, don't you dare eat any of that. It's practically the same as worshiping an idol. And he could really move in on that with them. You don't want anyone to think that you're still in the idol worshiping ages and don't, don't do any of that. My goodness, why would you even ask that kind of question? It seems so... No. Right? Paul moves in on it. And he gives us a principle. He's going to answer the question and he gives them the principle. So he begins by something that they probably already have said. And you see that by the air quotes. If Paul was there, he'd be saying, we know that all of us possess knowledge. All right. Paul's saying, got it. You possess knowledge. Yours. Right. You're so knowledgeable, Corinthians. All of us possess knowledge. Okay. And so Paul gets them back to the core of the issue, and he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? And we get our word edify from that word, builds up. It's, a, it's an architectural term. It's, it's literally building up. And as you're reading through Corinthians, you can't help but see all of these references that Paul's using to building up, and even more so when we get into this next um, chapter going on. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, right? So that's anybody in the room who's acting like Cliff Clavin. Remember the show oh, Cheers? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Cheers, he's at the corner, Cliff Clavin. And someone would bring up a conversation. He'd say, well, you know. <laughs> and he'd throw in a little trivia tidbit about whatever it is. If anyone imagines, well, you know, we're free in Christ, we can do this. Well, you know, that was offered to idols and we shouldn't do that, right? Anyone who has knowledge. He does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, if you're moving in so much on your knowledge, you don't know anything. You've missed the point, he's saying. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, your knowledge is useless if you don't have love. And isn't he going to be drilling in on that? We all know that chapter is coming up pretty soon. Chapter 13, right? The famous love chapter. But this is a beautiful reminder right here at the beginning of all the commandments, at the very beginning of everything, when God called his people out of slavery, out of sin out of Egypt and brought them out to Sinai and gave them an identity as a people, the first central commandment he gave to all of them is summed up in the Shema. And uh, it's in Deuteronomy 6. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. He adds that later on in Luke and Matthew and as well in Leviticus. And then maybe you know this because you memorized the song or you learned it when you were in a youth group. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What? Knows God. I want you to take a look at what Paul says in verse 3 here. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then John comes and says, well, he knows God. It's this reciprocal relationship. And the important thing for us to remember is when you are acting out of love and you put love ahead of knowledge, that is going up to God as an offering, a sweet fragrance. That's how God knows you. And he's going to see you. That knowledge that you act on when you're acting like that, and knowledge is important, it would be silly, and Paul talks about later that he's really proud of his other churches because they have knowledge. So it's not like we're going to dismiss knowledge, but we're not going to be entering in and throwing our knowledge at people. We, we need to be entering in and throwing our love around people and then coming around them with knowledge. And when you are doing that, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. That knowledge isn't a barrier. Why? Because you're humble. It's the humble person who can come before God, who lets it all go and, and basically is willing to say, I know nothing and submits everything so that when we're in a conversation, we're willing to hear and listen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and how it, he applies that. So in verse four, he says, so therefore, um, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that here he is with his air quotes again, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but God one no real existence no god but one got it we all know that that's basic stuff james says in chapter two you believe there is one god good even the demons believe that and shudder like good for you you know that right says for although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many lowercase g quote-unquote gods many lords and so in this part right here, there's a couple things I want to move in on. One, I'm going to just brush by real quickly. And the other, I want to move in on a bit just for your sake and just understanding this. Um, there's many gods, lowercase g. Mm -hmm. There's many lords. Really, Paul? Are there? Well, yeah, actually in Acts 17, Paul discussed with the men of Athens that they had set up so many gods on these little G gods. Um, and he came along and said, Hey, you got this one placard here, one, one space available for the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. So they had all of these gods, and everywhere they went, that would have been the situation. There would have been gods everywhere. So every single piece of meat really was dedicated somehow to their patron, lowercase g, um, God. And the sense of lords that he's talking about is the Caesars, all the rulers, everybody in that time would have been referred to as lord. So there's an aspect of that that he's talking about, but then there's this other that I'm going to just brush by because we talked about it so much in Genesis. And this is when God divided the nations and he took Israel to himself and he gave the other gods 
to, um, to the other nations or the nation to the other gods, lowercase g. And this is part of the divine world council view. We're not going to talk about that too much tonight, but if you're curious, you're like, wait, what? There's other gods? Yeah, there are. It talks about that a lot in, in prophecy. Deuteronomy um, 32 and then Psalm 68 so or 82. Um, go study that up. But yeah, so there's both meanings of that going on here, I believe. And uh, so you might want to kind of go back home and kind of double check on that a bit. So Paul's addressing that. But he's getting them back to the main point that he's trying to help them see and, and understand because it's the big principle. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. So he's acknowledging back to the pagans. They don't get that. They're not living in that truth. This is the ultimate truth. And these pagans that are circulating around us, um, they, don't, they don't get that. They don't understand that. So as we move forward, he's going to truly try to help them understand this principle. And so I want to help you understand it a little bit, what the reality would have looked like for them in, in a sense. Um, if you were to go shopping tonight, leave here, get your groceries for the week, um, what would be the best place you can get the best deal on meat? If you're going to go buy a really good Big meat, packet of beef, right? Okay. Costco? Sam's Club. Sam's Club. Okay. All right. Maybe a favorite butcher that you have. All right. Well, the best place to go and buy meat in Paul's day in Corinth would have been right next to the temple. Here's the temple. There's the grocery store. <laughs> Literally right next door to them. Um, so temple life would have been all around them. This is We see Starbucks all around us. We see McDonald's all around us. Imagine instead, at every corner, instead of a Starbucks and a McDonald's, is a temple to another couple of gods. That was life in, in Corinth. And so the good meat actually came out of these temples because they would sacrifice the meat, and a portion would go to the god, and then a portion would go to the priest that was doing the sacrificing, and then the rest they would just put out in the market and people could buy Okay, And what's interesting is the pagans had this, but God had this as well, because this is exactly how he set things up. When you go back into Genesis, ex, or Exodus and Leviticus, even Genesis, um, God says, you know, when you sacrifice to me, you take some for yourself, and then the priest gets some, because they don't have their own allotment. They don't have their own land. So they live off the rest of the sacrifices. So this was part of their culture. It wasn't just pagan. It was part of their cultural um, you know, experience in general. Wouldn't that be interesting if that's what we did? Here at the church, you know, on Fridays we chop up the meat, whatever, make it available um, to the community. Thankfully, we don't have to. Yes, yeah. Thankfully, we don't have to do that in our community, right? So, Paul is getting them back to something that's very important to their actual daily existence. This is something that's real for them. It's not something they're just like drumming up issues. Like this is an actual real issue that they would have been struggling with. And as you went through that exercise I had you do on the chart and the green team, like you said, or the reds and the, and the orange and the gray areas and things like that. Maybe as you were going through it, you started to think about it in your own life as you're doing it at home. But then as people were answering um, in your groups, what that looked like and how it was different. So for example, I didn't put this, I don't think on the list, um, but mantras have come up in my life before people saying, oh my gosh, you should never say a mantra. That's repeating a prayer. It's useless. The Bible talks about that. And other people say, no, that, that's very helpful for me to repeat a prayer. 
different view on that. Um, some people say yoga. No way. I would never as a Christian do yoga. That's a big no. Others say it's just stretching. Like just talk about Jesus instead of talking about some Hindu God. People have really strong opinions about that. Some people have strong opinions about Halloween. We just literally had that this week. Others have strong opinions about Christmas. I mean, you're bringing a pagan ritual into your home and putting up a tree in your home that is roots of paganism in your home easter even saying the word easter is invoking the name of a pagan god it that is the roots of that that's why some people refuse to say that word and just say resurrection day and so one of the things that the one of the things that the church in corinth was struggling with was this influence of pagan from their past life the paganism of their past life and how does that look now that i move forward and I identify with the I am that we said at the beginning of that's who I am. And one of the things that I would encourage you just on the side to think through on all of that is to be consistent. If you're going to reject all the paganism, maybe consider the possibility of rejecting even saying the names of the days of the week. Every single day of the week is named after a Roman god. Every single month of the year is named after a Roman god. So some Christians, because of that, have actually stopped saying that because they don't feel comfortable invoking the name of a pagan god, as they say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday's Thor's day. Um, Sunday is named after the sun god. Monday is the moon god. Um, Wednesday is Woden's day. They all have their root back in paganism. So to be consistent, maybe we should... Stop doing all that. Maybe there is a way that Paul's giving us a principle um, to live by. So Paul recognizes that knowledge isn't the most important, but it's necessary. He says, yeah, that's true. There's only one God, and I'm glad that you know that. But if you are not living with love, then you're missing the point. And he says next, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak, note that word, weak, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, he says. We're no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. All right, so either way, he's saying that the food isn't the issue. Even Christ himself said it's not what comes out of a man that is of any uh, significance, right? But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to who? The weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, this knowledge that he, they were talking about, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is what? Weak. weak. To eat food offered to idols? And at that point, you're like, whoa. What would that look like then in my life? I'm not going to be going to a temple. I don't have need to do that. That's not where I buy my groceries. They had no choice. That's where you got the meat. That's a big problem then. And he says, and so by your knowledge, this who, what kind of person? Weak person is destroyed. Now here's where he defines this weak person all along. The brother for whom Christ died. So he's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about Christians. This is where he's talking about Christians at this point right here. And he's not just talking about your general, everyday, run-of-the-mill, average Christian. He said it over and over again. What kind of Christian is he referring to? Weak Christians. All right? Now, he addresses this later on in Romans. And he talks about this weakness as being a weakness of their faith. There's a problem here. 
They're not spiritually edified enough. They haven't grown in their faith. They're weak in that, right? And so verse 12, he says, thus sinning against your brothers, Christians, wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Mm -hmm. His point is you're causing an issue by what you're doing. You're exercising your freedom in such a way that these weak Christians are going to be wounded um, because of what you've done. And that's wounding Christ. Why? Because he's making the point that we're part of the body of Christ. He's going to really drill into that in the next chapter coming up. But all the parts of the body working together. But listen, it gets better. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right? So listen, how many of you know someone who's a vegetarian? They don't eat meat at all. How many of you know somebody who's a vegan? They don't eat anything from any animal including honey. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe there's somebody who's a raw vegan. They won't even cook vegetables. They're going to eat it. So we, we present ourselves then with some type of a conundrum. Like, how far do we go? Yeah. And what does that look like in a practical sense in my life? Are we all supposed to then, because there is a Christian who exists out there somewhere, who for whatever reason is decided, I'm not going to ever eat meat, or I'm not even going to eat honey, so because those people exist in the world, are all of us in this room here, I don't, I don't know if there's any raw vegans in here, but if all of us are in this room, none of us were, let's say, but there's somebody out there who was, all of us need to then be vegan. Is that what Paul's saying? Let's take a look. So Paul ends up making this case, because if it is, we need to shift, our, we, we need to, shift. We need to be willing to knock it off. Right. Stop eating meat. If that's what the Bible is teaching, shouldn't we repent? Listen to what Paul says. And he makes this incredible case. Listen carefully. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? By saying, by evoking that he's a, an apostle, he's saying, basically, I'm like top dog Christian. I'm not just like a regular Christian like you people. And he's not saying it condescendingly, but he is. He's like top dog. Like these are the people. And to be an apostle meant you saw Christ. So that, that kind of puts to rest anybody claiming to be an apostle today. There's, there's no apostles today. You're, you didn't see Jesus Christ in person. And people can argue that point. I'm not going to make a case out of it. But that's the definition of an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? That's the definition. Are not you my workmanship? I basically birthed you. Like, so he's got seniority over all of this. I've got all the rights. I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus. Everything you're hearing from me, you, I heard from Jesus. I'm giving it directly to you. If to others I'm not an apostle, in other words, they don't maybe consider me one. They don't know what they're talking about, though. At least I am to you. You know the deal, he says. For you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As to the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and to Cephas, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He goes into all these rights. You're like, aren't you getting away from them? Subject at hand here, Paul. Paul's making a very important case. And listen, if we're going to follow, imitate Paul, like he imitates Christ, which we've been asked to do, we need to pay attention. Maybe we need to be all be vegan. Maybe we're all in sin on this issue. Let's move in and find out. Make sure we don't leave here reprobates. <laughs> who serves as a soldier on his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating his fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? You're like, uh, okay, we get the point. But let me go further. Do I say things like this on my own authority, he says, on human authority? 
isn't just the law say the same? In other words, Paul's saying, I always love to remind us here, what's the best commentary on the New Testament? The Old Testament. Paul brings it up right here. Doesn't the law say that? For is it not written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain? Yeah, it does say that, Paul. Thanks for bringing it up. Where are you going with this, right? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, yeah, I mean, God loves animals and he wants to make sure we're not treating them irresponsibly. But is it for oxen that God is concerned? No, this is a human principle he's giving us. Does he not certainly speak for our sake, right? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope with a thresher, thresh and hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, and we have, is it too much if we reap material things from you? No, it's not. Again, where are you going with this, Paul? If others share, Cephas, Paulos, this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this what? Right. I have all the rights above everything else to do anything I want, right? But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What's Paul's priority? The gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? I just explained that to you. Yes, they chop up the meat over here. They, they, they sell at the grocery store right next door and they take home the good stuff for themselves as well. He's like, yeah, it's true. That's what they do. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, maybe we need to be paying Paul. Mm -mm. Verse 15, what does he say? I made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, I'm not, I'm not coming at you with ulterior motives to tell you how great I am, and I deserve it, and I do. I am an apostle. I met Jesus in person. You want my autograph? <laughs> you know? He goes, but I have not made any use of these rights, nor am I writing. I'm not trying to get that from you. Hear me out here, he says. For I would rather die. Now that's hyperbole. Paul is just saying, this is how serious I am. I'd rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Really? For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So he's saying, look, it's just not on me how great I am that I preach the gospel. For necessity is laid upon me. I can't do otherwise. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And in your study, I had you look up Jeremiah, who was in the exact same situation. When God called Jeremiah, similar to the call that he gave to, to Paul, he told Jeremiah point blank, you're going to preach my word for your entire life and no one's going to repent. Worst ministry sales pitch ever. He'd be like, I'm going to become an architect. Right? Yep. So he goes, he reminds us of the passion then that Jeremiah has. No, I can't do anything but preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. I'm just doing my own thing, right? But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I can present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my what? Right. Right, right in the gospel. I've got everything going for me in terms of rights. I have my rights. I'm not going to make full use of those rights, even though I'm fully deserving. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
And he just drills into this truth, what he's trying to get across. Because why? He's saying, imitate me. This is how willing I am to do what's right for the gospel. And I know you're waiting to find out if we should all become vegans. So hang in there with me. It's going to get there. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, I don't eat bacon when I go to my Jewish friend's house. That's a stumbling block to them. Because the gospel's more important than my love for pork or shrimp or shrimp wrapped in pork. (laughs) (laughs) Really convicting right here. I'm like, what? (laughs) To those outside the law, pagan Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God. In other words, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I'm not doing anything immoral. I'm not breaking any of the Ten Commandments out there, right? The law of Christ is grace, right? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, it became weak. He's already talked about all those weak people, right? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, two things. Number one, we know Paul isn't the instrument of salvation. Jesus Christ is. So he's not saying that. It would be like you witnessing to a friend and then coming back and telling everybody, they got saved. I led them to Christ. Like the Holy Spirit led them to Christ. You know, it's so awesome that you're a part of that, right? That God gives us that. So he says, I become all things to all people. So does that mean he's two-faced? He acts like this in one situation. He acts like that in another situation. Open your Bibles to Galatians. Because this exactly, this exact issue came up in the church. Chapter two, or I mean, chapter, yeah, two, chapter two. Starting in verse 11, Paul's addressing the Galatians who were being fed another gospel. He calls them out and he says, how quickly you have gone away from this gospel of grace. And you're, you're trying to get people back into living under the law. And verse 11, he says, when Cephas or Peter, chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I have closed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, and this is the, this is the issue, Paul says, I become all things to all people that I might by means save some. But then he calls Peter out. Listen to the difference here. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was Cephas. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party of the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted what? Hypocritically, probably in your Bible or something along those lines. They acted, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray. That's his little buddy Barnabas that he's talked about a minute ago, right? He was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in what? Step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like a Jew? What's what's the deal? Is Paul giving two messages here. I become all things to all people. I live like a Jew or I live like a Gentile. No, because Paul is not being hypocritical about it. He's stating it plainly. He's not keeping it covert up. He is who he is in all circumstances for the sake of the gospel. That's Paul's priority because he wants to save some. That's his mission, right? So verse 23 I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Like you saying, I led someone to Christ. 
You got to share in that blessing. The Holy Spirit did the leading, you know that. Jesus did the saving, you know that. But you got to share in the blessings, and now they come to church and sing on choir and volunteer for Halloween things with you. It's so much fun <laughs> sharing all those blessings. And then he goes into this example that the Corinthian church would have really related to because geographically we know exactly where Corinth is. You saw the video, you watched it, you remember it. They're on this isthmus, isthmus. And you're probably familiar with the uh, Olympic Games originating in that area. Well, in Corinth, they had their own set of games. It was about as big as the Olympic. And if it didn't, if it had taken off a little bit better, but they got too distracted with their sexuality that they didn't get to do that, we would have been calling the Olympics the Isthmus game, whatever. I'm glad it's Olympics. It's way easier to say. <laughs> so at the time, they had these games uh, called the Isthmus Games there in Corinth. And the deal with the Isthmus Games was, it, in order for someone to uh, compete in that, they had to take a vow. And they were under strict dietary restrictions. I don't know if it was keto or paleo or whatever it was, <laughs> but it was some kind of diet to keep them all in shape back then. And all the people who would have competed in those games, and anyone in society would have been familiar with this analogy, it would have just rang a bell for them. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? Yeah, we know that. Don't all get participation awards. It's not 2,000, right? <laughs> so run, so run that you may obtain it, right? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. These are, they know about these athletes. These were elite athletes back in the day, just like we have today. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a little wreath around them, right? That word for wreath is the same word that's used that talks about the crown of thorns that went around Jesus. And it's the exact same word for the crown of thorns that Christ received. They do it to receive that crown, that wreath, but we receive something imperishable, an imperishable wreath is what he's talking about there. So he says, so listen, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box like I'm beating the air. I, I, I deal with reality here, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now that's a scary verse, right? It's scary because is he referring to the possibility that after doing all this hard work to be as good of a Christian as he's being, that somehow he could end up losing his salvation at the end of the whole thing? Is that what he's saying right here? Because it's really important for us to know. We need to go home secure in that. Because all of you are going to try to imitate Paul like he imitated Christ. You're going to live in this way. You're not going to run aimlessly. You're going to tighten it up. You're going to get straight with your vision and your mission and your strategies. You're going to box, not as one beating the air, but really be focused. And after all that effort to do all those things, to do it right and do exactly how Paul is describing it to do, are you going to leave here worried that somehow at the end of all of this, you're going to be disqualified? You're going to get to the end and Peter's going to be like, yeah, you're not on my list. Open up the trap door and down you go. Is that what's going to happen? Is that what Paul is saying? No, no, he's not. Here's what Paul is referring to. And it's really important that we, we, manage, we get this distinction. Being disqualified has nothing to do with your salvation because Paul's made that very clear at the beginning of Romans and we, at beginning of Corinthians. And we quoted it before we began today. Everything that we said is already done. You are sanctified. You are redeemed. You are set apart. You have been made holy. There's, there's no erasers in heaven for that. Now, there's job descriptions that can change, though. That's how you get disqualified. Your job description is going to change, right? And Paul doesn't want his job description to change. He's an apostle. He's got a mission. And so if he lives his life in a sloppy way that doesn't take into account the people around him that he's trying to win for the gospel, 
He's not worthy. He's not qualified. And Jesus doesn't want that distraction. God doesn't want that distraction. The Holy Spirit is going to do work in his life to get him back on track, and he might end up for a time being disqualified, or God might just take him home. And we're going to learn about that later on, because God does exactly that when people were taking communion without being qualified, without examining their heart. And God said, nope, we're out. I don't want you to destroy my church. And he yanked him out, right? So is Paul talking about losing his salvation? No. no. He's talking about losing his job description, right? He's going to be disqualified if he doesn't keep his act together. That's important because sometimes as Christians, especially Protestants and the freedom of grace that we have in Christ, we're like, look, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. Freedom! And that's awesome, and we should celebrate that. But at what cost? Me celebrating my freedom in Christ to destroy, the word there when he says to, to stumble, destroy my brother in Christ, is it worth it? All right? Well, have I answered the question yet? Do we all have to leave for vegans? We're getting there. <laughs> for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. So he's going through this Old Testament again. So again, what's the best commentary on the New Testament? Old the Old Testament. Testament, exactly. He says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So what's the best commentary on the Old Testament then? The New Testament, because did they know that that rock was Christ when they drank from it back in the Old Testament? Do they know now? That's super cool. There's another saying that you might want to write down. It's really cool. It's what is hidden in what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. Maybe you've heard that. It was, that's an old, 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 old. It predates me by about 2,000 years. Um, what's concealed in the old has been revealed in the New Testament. So we know now that Christ is that rock. Let me tell you a, a really cool thing about this. You know how I love my Hebrew, and I love the Hebrew roots, and I love understanding the Jewish things and how it adds illumination and understanding to our understanding. And Paul would have known that too. Why? Because Paul's a Jew. And a legend developed about this um, situation with this rock. And we know the story because you guys did your work and about how you know, Moses hit the rock or he spoke to the rock and, and the water came out or people got in trouble and they made it bitter. All the things about the rock and the water and all that. Well, a legend came up around that. And this is, again, just legend from the Jews. And a tradition circulated among them that the, the rock that Moses hit at the very beginning of their journey through the wilderness followed them. It was a rolling stone. Right there, through the, through the wilderness. It just rolled right along with them. And every time they need water, just there would be the rock rolling alongside of them. Right? So the Jews have this really interesting tradition. So what's very interesting about this is that uh, when Paul uses this word for rock, he doesn't use the word that means a, uh, he uses the word that means um, uh, uh, not a little tiny rock, but a big cliff rock. So Petrus would be this little tiny rolling rock, and he uses the word Petra in this case. So that word, that Greek word for rock is actually a cliff. There's no way a cliff is going to be rolling anywhere. Paul's saying, this isn't just a little rolling stone. This is a spiritual rock, Christ. All right? So this would be to put to rest anything that the Jews might have had in their little legends that were coming along with them to help them visualize that this really was Christ back in the day. So nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown <clears throat> in the wilderness. Now that word overthrown, that's a pretty scary word. I'll just give you that Greek on that one. Um, that is basically saying God scattered their bodies all over the desert. 
that's what that word is saying. He, the, he, he wiped them out and he, he spread them all over the wilderness. It's kind of a, it's a gory word in the Greek. So they were overthrown, <clears throat> politely saying it, in the wilderness. Now, these things took place for what reason? Example. Example for us. So anyone who comes along and says we should unhitch from the Old Testament, we shouldn't, you know, put stock into that. Um, that needs to, we need to stop anybody who talks like that. Say, no, no, they, those were given for examples to us that we might not, what? Desire the evil that they did. Why? This is going to be really important in just a second because we're going to get to verse 13. You've got to remember this. Why? We don't want to desire the evil they did. Why? Because I'm inclined to. <laughs> That's my heart. And you're like, yeah, it isn't kind of not, though. I, when did I make a golden calf? <laughs> so he goes right into it. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. It's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that could seem like, what that seem? That's a normal day for anybody, right? Go down, you sit down to have to eat and sit down to drink, and you rise up to play. <clears throat> the wording there is unfortunate because that word play, actually, in the Greek, should be, if it was translated in euphemistically for today, would be like, party. It would be different if I said, I'm going to a party, or if I said, I'm going to party. That's different. That's the, that's the meaning here. So he says those people were like that. They would eat and they would drink and they would rise up to play, right, in a, in a not okay way. And so he says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Some of them did. 23,000 fell in a day. We must not put Christ to the test. Why would Christ have anything to do with that? He wasn't walking around with them in the wilderness. <gasps> or was he? <laughs> exactly. So as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, and that was the same serpents that came along, bit them all, and Moses said, God told him, make a bronze serpent. If they look up to that serpent, I'll heal you. All they had to do was look. And some people were that stubborn, they wouldn't even look. And this is the serpent that Christ refers to himself as. Nor grumble. This is an interesting Greek word. It's an onomatopoeia. It has... When you say the word in Greek, it actually sounds like it is. And maybe you'd like to try it. You can pronounce it like this. Ganguzo. Ganguzo. Yeah, like when you're in a death metal band. Talking like that. So this is that grumbling, murmuring sound. Like everything's just a blur in the background. That's what happened there. Grumbling against them. Now this type of grumbling is really interesting because he's gone from idolatry to grumbling. And you're like, categorically, that seems a little bit much of a stretch. Idolatry is obviously really bad. Sexual immorality is really bad. We're maybe tended to sit there like, I would never make a golden calf or go around the neighborhood and start sleeping around with people, right? So he brings in the whole, right? Okay. So he brings in the grumbling thing and, and he brings up this, this uh, gongutso Greek word here. This is the story of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. The issue with the grumbling wasn't just a little bit of grumbling. It was saying, I want things done my way. Why is that guy in charge and why aren't I? Why aren't things running the way I want them to run? Right? So at that point, you're like, oh, I guess that's just me. I guess I do that. <laughs> I guess I do think like that. And they were all destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen to them as a what? Example. But they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age come. This is Paul referring to the fact that this is the church age. This doesn't mean the world's going to end tomorrow. This is the end of the age. Like, this is it. Christ has come. The next time he comes, it's in judgment. The first time he came, he's a nice little lamb. You know, cute, cuddly. You know, Easter, uh, Christmas, next time he comes, horse and sword and the judgment and all that, the end of the age is come. Therefore, lest anyone 
Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? Because you're the one ticking it off. Yeah. I don't know, I do idolatry. I don't do sexual immorality. Grumbling, yeah. Don't think like that. No temptation is overcome. That is a common demand. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape so you can endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. This is the Greek word we get our word forehead from. He's like, use your noodle. This isn't too hard to grasp, he's saying. Think. What I'm laying out for you, my logic is clear, right? I speak to sensible people who judge for themselves what to say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And we're going to get a lot more into communion as we move into the next lesson. Because there's one bread, we hear many, and one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel and all that they went through. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants of the altar? What do I imply then? So he's back to his point. Here we go. Are you going to be vegans when you leave? You want the answer? To offer to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participation, have any participation with demons. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have it both ways. You're either all for God or you're not. There's no middle ground on this. So are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Did that work out for the Israelites? Yeah. Are we stronger than he? Did that work out for the Israelites? No. So, all things are lawful. And he's like saying it like they would have said it. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. Got it, he said. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Like, don't make a deal out of it. Don't fuss about it. Don't go into the meat market, in other words, and say, excuse me, what gods did you offer this meat to? What did you, did you pray over this to a guy? Because I'm not going to be able to eat it. Like, he's like, don't be that person. Just go in and eat and don't make a fuss about it, he says. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the principle. Everything's God's anyway. None of that matters anyway. If one of the unbelievers, now he's moved over to unbelievers, invites you to dinner, and you feel like going, you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising a question on the ground of conscience, right? So putting it into modern days right now, if something comes along the table, and he's not talking about food allergies, of course, but if something comes around the table and you're not 100% sure about it, don't bring it up and make an issue out of it. But, he says, if someone says to you, Oh, by the way, this food that you're about to eat has been sacrificed to an idol. Don't, don't eat it. <laughs> Why? It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. They are testing you. Remember, these are unbelievers. You're at an unbeliever's house. They want to see, are you consistent in your beliefs? Be consistent to the unbelievers. Are you consistent with it? what you say you do? Who you say you are in Christ? Are you consistent? So if they come to you and say, oh, by the way, I, I cooked this, um, you know, stew or whatever with red wine in it. I made it with wine. And they know you don't drink wine. And so they make a point of saying, I made this with wine. What are you going to do now? Like, oh, I can have a roll. It's good. I don't need it. He said, don't bring it up. But if they do it to test you, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, 
but don't deal with that. Not for your conscience. In other words, it's not going to harm you either way. Eat it if you want. Don't eat it if you want. But they break it up and make it a case. Bow out. I don't want. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Okay. Why should my liberty be determined by some pagan out there in their conscience? Who cares? Right. It doesn't matter. Drink. Eat. Right. All that's okay for you to do. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? You're not denounced, he's saying. Eat whatever you want to eat. Don't make an issue out of it, he says. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He says, don't give an offense to the Jews or the Greeks. Don't find a way to bug them about what their issue is. Don't go out of your way to make it an issue. For them, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not like not like Peter being two-faced and hypocritical, he had to get called out for it, not seeking my own advantage. In other words, I have the liberty to drink a glass of wine. I have the liberty to have a cocktail. I have the liberty to fill in the blank, whatever it is. Just acknowledge Christmas, but I'm not going to flaunt that in front of somebody that is weak. Now, listen, I want to be really clear on this. You can't control everybody's little prejudices prejudices out there. There's people with a lot of cultural issues about what they're going to do. When I grew up, my mom wouldn't let me have hoop earrings because when she grew up in Panama, all of the prostitutes were hoop earrings. It was a big thing. They had hoop earrings. So in ninth grade, I remember very specifically going to the jewelry store and being forbidden to have hoop earrings. And she said, it's not because I think they're actually wrong. It's because when I see that, I make this association. And it's too much to see my little girl looking like that. So for now, we're not gonna, I'm not going to let you have the hoop earrings. So she didn't just say, no girl of mine going to wear hoop earrings and look like a prostitute. <laughs> she gave me the rationale. I'm like, oh, it makes sense. It's kind of weird, but oh well. We'll get hoop earrings some other day, right? And, you know, I should have worn them tonight just to make a big point out of it. <laughs> Here's the thing. He's not saying, he's not saying that you have to stop what you're doing on the account of somebody's prejudice because of um, their little personal preferences in life. Otherwise, you'd all have to be vegans right. and stop eating honey because there's a Christian out there somewhere who would be horrified to find out that you were ate honey. How dare you hurt those little poor bees? Do you know what they do to those bees to get that honey? They, they don't do anything just in case you want to be just freely given. The point is, this is for somebody who's weak in their faith and that you doing something in front of it and flaunting your freedom would cause them to question their faith. It's not that it would cause them to question their prejudice, their personal habits, their upbringing. They should question that. Maybe you having a glass of wine and, and, and drinking responsibly will make someone think, I've never seen a Christian drink responsibly. I grew up with an alcoholic. I've never seen that. That was possible. That's a beautiful, healthy thing. Right? Now, most of you know my story. Now, my husband was an alcoholic himself. And for the time that he was an unrepentant alcoholic, there's no way I would have alcohol in our home. There's no way. But if you've been to my home since he's been redeemed and repented, there's alcohol in our home. And it's only because my husband has said, that is not assembly block to me. That's not going to cause me to lose my faith. And he signed off on that. And if he hadn't, if that wasn't, an, if that wasn't a continuing issue for him, that would be horrific of me to flaunt my freedom in Christ and blend, you sinner, you should get your act together. Well, too bad for you, alcoholic. What kind of attitude is that? And Paul's saying, you don't kick the weak while they're down. They're weak, you love them. 
It's their weakness, but he's also not talking about personal preferences and prejudices. Those types of people need to repent. That's judgmental issues on their behalf. But if it's going to cause them to question their faith and destroy a weaker brother, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Hold off on that, right? He says, be imitators of me. In other words, he's given this entire defense. He said exactly what he's done. I could have charged you money. I charged the Philippian, then I don't charge him, but I let the Philippians pay me. I let the other churches pay me, but because of you and where you're at, I want to give you this huge example. I'm not even going to charge you, right? And I deserve it. I'm an apostle. I'm going to be like the Jews with the Jews and the Greeks with the Greeks because you need that as an example. That's where you are. They're living in horrific sin. They needed someone to tighten them up. So Paul's willing to do that for them. So he says, be imitators of me. I'm, I'm imitators of Christ. That's exactly how I am. And so for us, we shouldn't continue to struggle with, maybe I should be a vegan. Maybe I should never drink alcohol. Maybe I shouldn't do Christmas. Maybe I shouldn't do Halloween. Oh my gosh, it's crazy making. It makes you crazy. How are you going to actually meet every single need of every single supposed Christian out there with all of their little denominational preferences? I'd be wearing a skirt with nylons and, and heels all the time. No makeup on and no earrings and my head covered. Because there's, those are all the different sects of Christianity that talk about that. And you wouldn't be teaching. Exactly. <laughs> wouldn't even be here. Couldn't even be teaching. And that's going to be a, an important discussion as we get to this next chapter coming up. But as we move forward, I hope that this central truth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, will get you to go back. Well, then what did exactly Paul do? He laid out his rationale for why he was free to do anything he wanted. And then he said, I don't need to exercise that. Here's the deal. I have freedom in Christ to do anything I want, which means I have the freedom to not do anything I want. I don't have to do everything. If I'm with someone who this is going to stumble, I don't have to do the thing, right? And so those of us who have a restriction in that area because our conscience is weak, it goes back to our past, it goes back to something we just can't quite grapple with, we have to keep that in check then. And not look at somebody else who's a Christian who has freedom in that place and go, hmm, how about, why are you even doing that? See, this is what we're trying to cultivate in our women's study here and how we engage with each other. Because listen, if I don't know you, if I don't sense you, if I don't have empathy for you, then I'm not going to know. I'm going to live my life callously toward you. We have to live with each other in mind, he's saying, in that community. That takes empathy. I got I to gotta think about you first. I got to wonder. And then I have to have the conversation. Hey, is this a problem for you? Is this, is this an issue for you? If you find out that a friend of yours is like, there's no way I would do Halloween. You know, I, Gunn and I went through that season on our own. There's no way we would have done Halloween. No way. I, I went through a season where I was worried about doing the Christmas tree. Some of you know my journey in, in that whole issue. So our point here is that we go back to Paul's goal. Do everything for the glory of God. And if we need to go back through and take and check and have some inventory about what we're doing, I think that's healthy. But let's do it in community and get to know each other and have that kind of relationship with each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for our time together, for the living word that teaches us and reminds us who we really are. Help us to leave here more and more affirmed in your truth, in your uh, understanding and how you want us to live. Bless these women as they leave tonight in Jesus' name. Everyone said Hallelujah. Amen. 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 All right. I'm happy to stay.
and answer any questions if you have any. Good stuff, good discussion in your groups, maybe. Well, we had a great time with the charts. That was yeah. That was yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll try to I'll try to repeat questions if they're asked so that people online can hear as well. What do we got? Any any good questions for tonight? Well, I was just making a statement about Harry Potter. Okay, that's a good one. You know, um, Brianna likes Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. uh, well, she read it. And, um, you know, in my old church, that was like Harry Potter's, you know, yeah. what is he, a wizard? <laughs> so, um, he's a wizard. So, they, they would be like, um, they didn't like Harry Potter. They were really against it, because I think it was right when it was coming out when, when they were talking about it. So I know she kind of brought it to church the other day, and I was like, I don't want to make a big deal about oh. this, but I kind of wanted to tell her maybe she should bring Harry Potter to church, and you know how people take it. So I just wanted to see how you thought. I also think it's just the time of her life, and she's going to roll through it, you know, yeah. it's just play. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Christine's question is about Harry Potter and your granddaughter enjoying reading the books Harry Potter. And that came up for me as a teacher. I mean, I, I've been teaching since the late 80s and been through a lot of different trends and a lot of things that are horrible. Um, at one point, we, we had a school rule that you couldn't wear... Um, uh, what they call them, tights or leggings? Leggings, no leggings oh my gosh, and all I'm that. Dying. Of course, right? And then, of course, Harry Potter. You know, we went in and out of, of, of all of that. And then after Harry Potter, it was Twilight. <laughs> right? So here's here's why we we have to go. We have to understand the principle. We have to understand the principle. Why? Because in a year, the next Harry Potter issue is going to come up, the next Twilight, the next issue. So if we're making it about that book, if we're making it about Twilight, making it about Harry Potter, making it about whatever fill in the blank it is, then we're going to miss the principle. It can't be about that. So there has to be a guiding principle on this. And and, and in this, we're going to have to have some wiggle room for that because the, the guiding principle really should be do all things for the glory of God and do nothing to stumble my weaker brother. Right. So within that... I, I have to start to think, well, is what I'm doing right now bringing glory to God or is it drawing glory away from, from God? So in the case of Harry Potter, I would say that's, that's for me, net neutral. That's neutral. But let me, let me also say this. Uh, well, my son, Jonathan, who's 26 now, when he was little, um, we let him watch um, car cartoons, whatever, regular cartoons. One of them was Spongebob. No issue with Spongebob at all. I, I loved the sarcasm. I loved the humor. I loved all of it. My friend found out that we let Jonathan watch Spongebob, and she sent me article after article after article about how horrible it was and how I was going to damage him. For From us, I didn't see any horrible benefit, horrible actions coming out of it. He didn't become a horrible back. I guess they were you know, how they would talk to each other, I guess, was a big problem. He was never rude. But I, I wouldn't go back to Harry Potter or Spongebob or anything if my son became rude, I would just say, how is that book influencing you? Is it helping you become a better human or is it detracting from your mission in life? And that's what we would go um, we would go back to. I would also add to this, and it's such a good question. Again, it has to go with that principle and making it personal for your granddaughter. I mean, if she's walking around casting evil spells on people, and I mean that seriously, I mean, Scholastic Book Club came out and they were literally teaching children how to cast spells. So our Christian school stopped using Scholastic as the book club. Um, because we felt like that was crossing the line. Mm -hmm. But is your child doing that? Is it harming them? Are they becoming more like that? Now, some people will say, that is a door I don't even want to open for my child. 
You are the parent, you're in charge. There's a wonderful guiding verse in um, Proverbs chapter 23, I think it's verse 17, and uh, Solomon's talking to his child, and he's writing out some principles for him. And this verse was my guiding verse as a parent, and it was as a teacher, and it is even to this day. And it says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Give me your heart. That means I know that I could force you to obey me today because I'm bigger than you. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one making the rules. I can literally pick you up and move you to the timeout chair. But there's going to come a point in your life, Jonathan, as I would talk to my son, I can't physically force you to do that. We're going to come to blows on that. So I wanted his heart. So I had to get to know him. What made him tick? My next door neighbor's son, who was the exact same age as Jonathan, uh, was predisposed to violence. And any movie he saw, he would just end up acting it out and punching people. Not because he was a horrible kid, but because he just liked to act it out. Jonathan brought his world in through his eyes and his ears. And so I had to be really careful about what I let him see. And there was a season in his life where I couldn't let him watch a Christian cartoon of Samson and Delilah because I noticed he kept on looping it back to Delilah. <laughs> that was a stumbling block for him. I couldn't let him watch a Christian cartoon. Why, is I, why am I hearing that loop back? And I, I peek my head around the corner. Oh, okay. <laughs> the third or fourth or tenth or fifteenth time. I think that's going to wear out the VCR. You have to know your kid. Yes. My son, give me your heart and then let your eyes observe my ways. So what does that mean? i got to have ways worthy of observing. i got to speak the truth in love. I've got to live like Christ lived. i got to be like Paul. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let your eyes observe my ways. So I... I, I'm not going to be the person who says yes or no on Harry Potter. You, as the grandmother, can influence that in your daughter's, your granddaughter's well, life. Yeah. And same thing with anything, anything to come from. Like it. Yeah, no, it's an, it's an important question. It, it's something that churches, I think people would love because we like our rules. And people would love if we just hand it out as a church. This is the list of things you shouldn't be doing with your kids or should be. Um, here's who to vote for. Here's how to vote. Here's what to say, when to say, what to wear. What to drink, what to eat, what to not eat. A lot of churches do that. That's how they live. That's legalism. And people like it. They like their little comfort zone of that. But it also doesn't allow you to have the time and the energy to actually think and develop this muscle in between your ears. And the same thing with the yoga with the old church. They were against the yoga, too. And I was like, I was going to yoga at the time, and I loved it. And then whenever they got to pray, I would pray to God. I don't know who the rest of the room was. <laughs> listening online, Christine's saying, you know, she was okay with doing yoga. Her church, former church, didn't like that. And she would pray to God. Who else, you know, whether yeah. she know who they're praying to. And I, I feel the same way. But again, am I going to invite someone to yoga that I don't know their weakness? I would have a conversation with them and say, hey, I'm going to go to this yoga. We're not Christian, but it's a really good stretch or whatever. I love it. And if she's not strong enough to say, yeah, that's not going to work for me. She's like, oh, I'll just do whatever. I don't know. Maybe she's too weak to do that. And so we have to know each other. And so, hey, if we've got a, a, the ability, why don't we provide a yoga that has nothing to do with Hinduism, nothing to do with the chakras and all the things. Yeah, holy yoga and things like that. So good question. Any other questions? Good stuff. Did you have a question? Sorry, no? <laughs> For later, yeah, because you mentioned the tweet earlier. Okay, yeah. We'll talk about that later. Good. Mm -hmm. Or you can ask it now. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Good stuff. All right.
All right, you guys are awesome. It's always good to have the discussion time, and I love it when you engage. So feel free to text me later or say, can we get up for, off for coffee? <laughs> say, I'm sorry, I don't do caffeine. <laughs> wow. I'll get tea. We'll go to the vault instead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, ladies. Have a great evening. God bless you all. Thank you. 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 Thank you